Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, now this is uh, week six. We are going to talk about the profound and complex relationships between the United States and China, and particularly, as you can see from a emotional perspective, love-hate relations between the two great powers. And the, you may wonder uh, how can countries develop this kind of emotional relationship? I think we don't have to look very far to understand this point, uh, given that Australia and China are currently in this very tense relationship. Certainly you can feel the emotion and the acrimony uh, in the China debate. So to, to a large extent, the US-China relationship um, can be understand, I mean, understood uh, from a similar perspective. Now I'm going to the next slide. Can you see the change? Uh, yeah, Chen, we can see the slide. There just seems to be a large sort of blue blacked out window that sits over the, um, yeah, that window there. Yeah, it seems to be obstructing half the slide, but apart from that, it is changing. Yep, that's better. Okay, yep. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Now, uh, before we start um, to the proper China-US relationship, uh, I'd like to yeah talk briefly about emotion in international politics. Uh, emotion uh, seems to be very uh, far removed from IR, uh, as you probably understand. Uh, it seems that many people are realists, and um, according to realists, uh, states act on the basis of rational calculations of their hard, fast national interests. So where is the emotion? Well, if we look at the term interests, you would recognize that interest is also closely linked to a kind of emotion or desire. As we know, if you are interested in something, that, that means you have an interest uh, in something. So the national interests are similarly linked to this kind of emotional and effective aspect of international politics. We know very often when we talk about national interests, uh, there is this um, strong feeling of nationalism, uh, national um, the feel of national belonging, uh, identity. So as you can see from here, emotion is not very far below the surface. And also some of the key concepts uh, we regularly encounter in IR such as national uh, security, um, foreign policy, and in Australia's case, uh, very often immigration policy is part of our foreign policy. Uh, 
very often those policies are based upon uh, the feelings of anxiety and fear, um, the fear of foreign invasion, for example, as the fear of being uh, swamped uh, by uh, foreigners. And in the recent decades, uh, terrorism uh, has been very much uh, part of the global politics picture. The war on terror has been going on for about 20 years. And terrorism itself, as you can see, uh, by definition, it is designed to terrorize people, uh, to inst uh, instill fear among the population. And the motivation of terrorists, some say, um, is based on, on hatred. So there has been this uh, strong debate of why do they hate us, uh, especially after 9-11. And soft power, as you can see, uh, it's unlike hard power, it's also, it plays strongly uh, to this kind of emotional aspect of people. Um, soft power is the power to attract. Um, so the power of attraction or even the power of uh, generating love among uh, other people, other cultures. And not to mention the, uh, even in the economic aspect, uh, we know the the Great um, Depression, that uh, the depression itself uh, is a term uh, that is strongly linked to emotion. And also the Great Financial, uh, the Great Global Financial Crisis uh, was sparked by the kind of panic uh, and the herd mentality when there's a feeling that something's going wrong. So as you can see, uh, International politics uh, is never far removed from emotion, desire, and irrationality. So uh, between leaders, uh, very often people talk about their personal chemistry, uh, whether they get along well, and um, the nation, after all, is a collective unit of people. So. If people can have emotions and the state can also have emotion and the state can, can be happy, uh, can be angry, and they can cry. Um, talking about the crying, uh, do you know who, which country cries a lot? Australia. Australia, <laughs> why? <laughs> Uh, no, because uh, last time Scott Morrison spoke, I can't remember what. He was a bit teary. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, Australia may be uh, up there. And uh, if you remember the famous song, uh, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. So Argentina might be the number one country who likes to cry, um, according to popular culture. Um, so the emotion 
also runs high uh, in US and China relationship across uh, the last nearly two centuries. And indeed, many of these um, historic moments, defining moments in US-China relations uh, could be described uh, with some kind of emotional words. Um, for example, before World War I and World War II, there was this um, long-standing feeling about China uh, with the sense of pity, uh, with uh, contempt uh, because of the uh, perceived backwardness of China, but also by the same token, there was this kind of love uh, for China. Uh, we will talk about this uh, very shortly. And when the People's Republic of China was founded, the feeling of love or compassion quickly turned into fear and hatred. Then in the early 1970s, the United States and China uh, had the rapprochement uh, during the Cold War when they managed to found the common enemy, uh, the Soviet Union. So they were in love again. And that also um, predated the China's opening up. And the opening up gave rise to a lot of hope uh, in the West in general and in the US in particular. But then the crackdown of Tiananmen protesters um, in 1989 sent these kind of shockwaves across the Western world. And the feeling, the prevailing feeling uh, was back to this kind of disappointment, fear, and even hate again. And more recently we know uh, the so-called loss of Hong Kong and the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the China virus rhetoric, especially from Donald Trump, had uh, have sparked this anti-Chinese and anti-Asian hate. And uh, there were also a speck of uh, anti-Asian hate crimes, especially in the US, but also uh, maybe uh, in Australia as well. Now let's start with this uh, in love with China. Um, do you uh, recognize this picture? No, I don't. This is a more recent picture. This has nothing to do with China. Oh, Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan. Yes, of course, yes. So yeah, this picture was... Uh, presumably at the uh, Kabul airport. And as you can see, the, this, this kind of a emotional appeal to this picture, uh, how American soldier was giving water to an Afghan boy. Um, the love, the compassion, the sense of um, us as a uh, kind of savior of a defective, backward, and helpless nation or civilization, uh, 
was also part of the dynamics in the United States attitude toward China uh, in the 19th, uh, 19th century um, because very China was very much seen as uh, the second man of Asia, if you like, uh, which needed uh, our uh, help, uh, assistance. Uh, so this kind of uh, language uh, is not coincidental because uh, very often the first, uh, the earliest China watchers, um, China scholars, if you like, they were strongly associated with missionaries. Um, all the, their parents were missionaries. So some China scholars uh, were even born in China where uh, their parents were doing this um, missionary work uh, in China to save souls. So overall, the uh, running threat, the running threat in the China watching uh, profession, if you like, had a, has been this kind of strong feeling of the need to change China for the better. And so this kind of China as a backward, uh, non-Christian country gave those people the opportunity to do some charity work, uh, to, to do uh, uh, to feel that they are, are doing some important work. And for example, the, in the uh, 19th century and the early 20th century, there was this uh, crest for China movement. Um, they believe that uh, the about 400 million of Chinese, uh, there were the Haitian Chinese, the uh, that this, this is the promised land for Christian conversion. So if we could convert China into Christianity, this would be the biggest achievement on earth. And the merchants uh, also played a part in this kind of love affair with China because of the size of the population. And they perceived huge opportunity for commerce, uh, for trade, for profit. So uh, if you, uh, you can see this, uh, this quote from a uh, US Senator uh, in 1940, uh, he said, with God's help, we will lift Shanghai up and up and up until it's just like Kansas City. So uh, I found that this word until uh, very uh, interesting here. So until it, it had, it need to have a endpoint. So it cannot be higher than that. Um, and also, this uh, this film uh, it's called Oil for the Lamps of China. So this basically portray the U.S oil companies adventure in China to sell more oil uh, to the Chinese market. But they do not just uh, say that they are selling oil. 
um, they portray this as the advance of Western civilization uh, in China to bring light, literally, to the darkness uh, of the Chinese uh, uh, land. So as you can see, the, this uh, was from this uh, film, um, an American oil executive uh, told the young um, uh, salesman, uh, mostly men uh, at the time, that yeah, the company is sending you out to China to dispel the darkness of centuries uh, with the light of a new era. Oil for the lamps of China, American oil, helping to build a great corporation, helping to expand the frontier of civilization. It's a great idea, gentlemen. So you, you got the best of both worlds. Uh, on the one hand, you could build a great corporation, you could make a lot of money, but on the other hand, you were doing a great service to human, humanity, uh, to spreading the civilization. Maybe just like today, uh, when we talk about uh, the spreading of democracy, human rights. Um, so the mission is never just uh, purely about um, profit, uh, as, uh, at least as uh, we were told. So no wonder uh, China would inspire, inspire this kind of uh, emotion and compassion and love. Mm. So the love was has been sustained by this perceived endless opportunity uh, in the Chinese market. Um, for example, the initially when we know the the market uh, was uh, the potential was there, but uh, it was not realized. Uh, until the introduction of opium by the British. The, the British East Indian Company um, found that uh, they could not sell anything to China and eventually they found uh, opium. And so this flag, uh, as you can see, uh, is the flag of the East Indian Company. What does this flag remind you of? It looks very Americanized, un almost Union Jack-like. Yes, yes. So this uh, British uh, Indian East Indian Company uh, flag, uh, indeed, uh, was believed to have inspired the design of the national flag of uh, the United States, um, the Grand Union uh, flag of the U.S., the 13 uh, first colonies, uh, so the, the, the straps. Of course, uh, this Union Jack um, was replaced by those uh, stars uh, of different states in the US. And also the, the similarity did not end there because um, the United States itself also profited enormously from the opium trade. Um, the US slave trade uh, profit funded the opium trade and the opium trade um, helped lay the foundation of the U.S. Industrial Revolution. 
So this kind of a transnational capital, as you can see, they helped the, one of the greatest power transition in the world, which actually uh, was the transition of power from China to the United States in the middle of the 19th century. Um, if you have been to Boston, Boston has a lot of institutions, buildings. They were almost, um, yeah, mo many of them were founded by money um, uh, made out of opium trade. Um, and indeed, the Franklin Roosevelt, uh, FDR's father, um, believed that uh, the the trade, the opium trade, uh, was honorable and um, fair and a legitimate trade. So they, um, as you can see, the their history was connected from the uh, very beginning of their entang uh, entanglement uh, through this kind of trade. But of course, uh, later on, it was believed that the, the United States also had the advantage of um, beating the British uh, with tobaccos. Um, the US congressman uh, dreamed that, uh, imagine how much of our tobacco might be uh, there chewed uh, in place of opium. So the United States was emerging as a comp competitor uh, of the British uh, in, the, uh, in the trade. Uh, in the global trade. And if you want to know more about the, the link uh, between the opium trade and the United States, uh, the, the, this, uh, this link uh, could provide you some history of uh, Boston's link. And with trade uh, came Chinese influence, um, a term we are very familiar with. And at that time, the, the Chinese influence uh, was very much uh, welcomed uh, because those influences uh, were seen mostly as uh, on the margin, if you like, uh, in terms of art, um, uh, the, the design of buildings, uh, furniture, etc. Um, these are the French word called sinwatery. Uh, there was this kind of uh, uh, of anything Chinese. Um, and even uh, in the United States, you could still find the traces of this kind of um, China fever, if you like, uh, places like uh, Peking, Canton, uh, named after Beijing and Guangzhou, uh, the contemporary names of these two cities. And in the 19 uh, 30s, around that time, the Western commentators um, constantly talk about uh, the China as 400 million customers. So there were about 400 million people in China at the time. So they were basically seen as just customers. So they are the market for our goods uh, and services. And this kind of the line of um, reasoning uh, continued uh, until very um, recently. 
the 1 billion customers. So merely the update of the numbers of people. So there were still uh, customers, hopefully uh, eager to consume our products. Um, the problem is um, there were the, this kind of emotions very often, uh, as we can understand, did not last very long, um, even among countries. World War I, uh, the end of World War I, um, dashed the hope of China about the Western role, especially America's role in helping China to modernize. So initially, uh, you may remember after World War I, US President Woodrow Wilson uh, famously proposed the 14-point plan to call for national self-determination, to help uh, the colonized peoples to, um, to become independent. So the, uh, this kind of a message reached China and many Chinese intellectuals believed that uh, Wilson uh, was a uh, kind-hearted man in dealing with a weak and oppressed nation. So they pinned uh, much hope on Wilson uh, to end China's semi-colonial status. Um, and even Chen Duxiu called uh, him the number one good man in the world. Uh, you may not have heard of Chen Duxiu. Um, some may have. Do, do you know who he was? Chen was. Um, he was. Uh, wasn't he in the PLA? PLA? Yeah. Uh, am I getting him confused with someone? Yeah, probably. There are many similar names. Uh, but he was um, he was one of the thirteen founding members of the Communist Party of China. So That's it. yeah, uh, so he he was really hopeful for for the United States to 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 be on the side of China. But uh, as we mentioned earlier, the end of World War One did not end. Uh, China's predicament uh, because the colonies, uh, the, the concession areas uh, previously occupied by Germany was given to Japan instead. So, and remember China was part of the victorious island countries in World War I. So China fought World War I uh, alongside uh, the, the island countries. So this was seen as a great injustice uh, by China. So that sparked the 1919 May 4th movement. That movement uh, was the watershed moment uh, in Chinese modern history. So that was seen as the beginning of modern China's struggle for uh, independence. Uh, and two years later, we, we, we know uh, the Chinese Communist Party was founded. And it was not just uh, these those um, progressive 
Chinese intellectuals uh, were disappointed. Even Jiang Kai-shek, we know uh, who he was. Uh, Jiang Kai-shek, the, the leader of the Nationalist uh, Party in China, who ruled China uh, until 1949. Um, he said the Americans come to us with smiling faces and friendly talk, but in the end, your government acts just like the Japanese. So he had no illusion anymore with the United States. But of course, that, that was in the 1920s, and uh, later on, he, he was uh, pragmatic enough to, to receive the support from the United States in the Civil War um, against the communists. And so even during the, the early period of China's anti-Japanese war, uh, the United States did not uh, come to China's aid until, of course, the Pearl Harbor. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and that um, changed the whole dynamic and China uh, was instantly transformed uh, into a uh, US ally. And this here, you can see the, the role of um, the Office of War Information, um, which was the forerunner of the, the CIA, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. So the CIA was very much in collaboration with Hollywood uh, to help the war effort uh, to produce, for example, those kind of propaganda films uh, to help um, the, the fight against Japan, uh, the film, The Dragon Seed, um, for example, uh, began to portray China as, uh, as human. Uh, as um, as fighting our fight, uh, as, as fighting for freedom, so so China was worth our effort to support um, their struggle uh, in in the Far East. So the image uh, dramatically changed uh, to uh, to a great nation, cultured and liberal, waiting to die for freedom. And so the Time magazine also uh, in 1937, that was the, uh, the official start of China-Japan war. Um, the Chinese people uh, fought for the virtue of Western civilization. So basically China was supporting, was supporting because they were fighting uh, for us or uh, they were fighting for something that we can understand. Mm. Then, the, after the end of uh, World War II, the defeat of the Japanese, the United States, um, because of the support of uh, the, because China, the United States, uh, they were both in the, uh, Highlight uh, side of the the war, um, FDR imagined uh, or planned these this four great powers uh, after after the war or five great powers: the U.S., the Soviet Union, uh, the U.K., uh, China, and France. So uh, they continued to support China, but uh, this time decided 
with the nationalists, uh, the uh, the ruling party in China, uh, the Kuomintang, against the communists. That civil war lasted for uh, three years from uh, 1946 to 1949, until uh, the fall of China, if you like. And the fall, for example, the, this picture shows the, the fall of Shanghai uh, in May 1949. So there's a book called The Last Boat Out of Shanghai, which perhaps could um, could remind you of the the rescue missions uh, today in Afghanistan. Um, those people were desperate to get on the last boat to leave Shanghai, to leave China, because of the Chinese communist takeover. And communist victory really shocked the United States. They strongly believed that China was so ungrateful. Uh, we helped you, but you turned your back uh, on us. And they lost uh, the loss of China debate. Probably, uh, yes, yeah, in a way similar to the loss of Afghanistan or loss of v Vietnam uh, debate. Uh, in the United States, uh, set off this uh, Micassiist witch hunt in the US. They began to search for traitors, uh, for those who they think were responsible for the loss of China. And of course, the loss of China um, happened at the beginning of the Cold War. They believed that China was very much now in the communist camp. So the fear of China um, turned into this uh, so-called red menace um, paranoia. And that fear of the red expansion uh, of China to other parts of the world, in part, prominent, prominent the US and some Western allies to enter into the Korean War to stop the expansion of China, stop the expansion of communism. And in the 1960s, um, the Vietnam War uh, was motivated by, the, by a similar logic, especially now this time, uh, there was a theory behind this kind of a fear, uh, the domino theory. So if, um, because China now had fallen, next Vietnam, and imagine when Vietnam fell, then would be Laos, Cambodia, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, etc. So this would be a very scary scenario. So that's why yeah, the United States and Western allies had to do everything they could to stop the expansion of communism because uh, as the cartoon uh, illustrate, living under communist, the communism uh, would be like hell. So this kind of anti-communist uh, frenzy was echoed and mirrored by China uh, at the same time. So basically the feeling was mutual. 
uh, if you hated us, then we would hate you as well. So in China, there was this uh, strong sense of anti-American uh, imperialism. Uh, the the cartoon, uh, as the, the poster, if you like, um, says that imperialism and all the reactionaries are just the paper paper tigers. And then the Cultural Revolution, um, people often believe that the Cultural Revolution started off yeah, mainly because of the paranoia of uh, Mao Zedong. Um, well, that's partly true, but also I think the international environment uh, helped feel that kind of a paranoia. Um, they believe that uh, the enemies were everywhere. They had to uh, clean the party um, without those uh, anti-revolutionary um, activists, and which included, uh, interestingly, the father of the current Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, his father, uh, as you can see uh, on this um, picture, uh, was basically paraded um, during the Cultural Revolution. So in a way, this was China's version of uh, McCarthyism. So both sides went really mad at the time. Okay, that madness uh, lasted um, into the 1970s. And the 1972 was a remarkable year because of the visit of U.S. President Nixon to China. Uh, to that was basically in the um, in anticipation of the Vietnam debacle, uh, because the United States felt that uh, its credibility had been damaged, and its hands was weakened uh, in the uh, Cold War. It needed something to cheer people up to uh, to find. Uh, a breakthrough, if you like, in the geopolitics. And by then, China also fell out uh, with Russia, with the Soviet Union. So they managed to find common enemy. So that's why Nixon went to China in 1972 to start uh, the so-called uh, the week that changed the world. And at the same time, uh, if this was just mainly for geopolitical reasons, uh, at the same time, Western intellectuals and students, idealistic students, in that period were also disillusioned with Western governments. Uh, the anti-war movements were quite strong. And they found China as a, a kind of a substitute for their uh, disappointment with Western governments. So China was become idealized uh, as a kind of socialist, egalitarian, uh, idealistic society uh, where you did not have all the capitalist problems, the drugs, uh, the sex, the corruption, uh, the war, etc. 
So they projected their image onto China. And so in many ways, the love of China was not really love of China itself because in the Cultural Revolution, um, you could not find a worse time to love China, uh, to be honest. So they were love of themselves or their unrealized selves. And you also have this kind of uh, hope that if China with its old and re radically different culture can be one, where can we not prevail? So China had to become this top prize, if you like, uh, for Western geopolitical uh, planners and intellectuals to project the hope. And so the, the China love affair continued um, into the 1980s, the end of 1980s. So he, he, this time uh, the China market uh, dream was again uh, revitalized. And I will um, show you briefly this uh, clip of Deng Xiaoping's visit. The eyes of Texas were on Deng Xiaoping today as the Chinese vice premier continued his tour of this country. His two-day schedule in Texas is certainly varied. A visit to the Space Center, a rodeo and barbecue tonight, an inspection of oil drilling equipment tomorrow. Despite some coolness and one hostile demonstration, he seems to be having a grand time. Here's a report from Jim Laurie. In Houston, Mayor Jim McCon gave Dung a box containing a set of Texas silver spurs. But Dung was denied the traditional key to the city, for Dung's visit here was controversial. About 400 noisy demonstrators were on hand at Dung's hotel. Houston, once named the sister city of Taipei, Taiwan, was not quite prepared to give the red Chinese leader a real red carpet treatment. But at NASA's Johnson Space Center, the Chinese vice premier was denied nothing. He climbed aboard the lunar rover, a model of the moon buggy the astronauts used to explore the lunar surface. These are some lasting impressions the Chinese will take away. Deng Xiaoping's aides say his most moving experience was here when the National Children's Choir went to the trouble of learning Chinese to sing that old favorite, We Love Tiananmen Square. Others didn't do so well. Across the country, his name was pronounced Ding, Dong, Dung, or even Ping. And one man struggled to get his title right. I welcome you, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Prime, Mr. Vice Premier, to the United States of America. As for Dong, he said he enjoyed American food, but found it unique that Americans ate veal at every meal. At four banquets in a row, that's just what Dung was served. We learned some new things about Dung. He likes astronauts, cowboys, and basketball, and has two grandchildren who asked Grandpa to bring home gifts. He needn't have worried. Dung was given a pewter owl, a moon picture, some Texas spurs, and not one, but two $10,000 bulls. Indeed, at the rodeo, the Chinese came alive. All wore cowboy hats and drank beer, and Lee Sun Sung of the Chinese news agency summed it up. We have uh, good relaxation, good barbecue, good country music, and a good rodeo show. <laughs> <laughs>
So the Chinese leave today with their memories and perhaps a new image for communist China's leading man. For Deng Xiaoping not only went west, but went western. Jim Laurie, ABC News. So, um, so the, that was this kind of uh, very, almost in a honeymoon period between China and the United States. And even Ronald Reagan uh, referred to China as the so-called communist China. Um, so Deng Xiaoping was uh, featured on Time magazine as the man of the year. Um, but then Cameron came along to dash all the uh, hope of China's democratic transition. So the, there was this wide, uh, wide expectation of China to, yeah, to become a democracy. Uh, they believe that this, this uh, sculpture uh, was uh, basically modeled after uh, the Statue of Liberty, um, but then we know the chairman, the tank man uh, picture, summed it up, the, it all ended uh, in the wrong way. So also the, this tragic end of this love affair with China coincided with the end of the Cold War. Now, the United States and China no longer had the common enemy of the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and also for a while, Japan was very much feared as a threat by the United States. Uh, you may or may not know there was this kind of a strong fear of Japan in the 1980s. Uh, there was even a book called The Coming War with Japan, published in the US, but also the Japan threat was diffused uh, because of the long recession uh, from the 1990s. So, so Japan was no longer a threat. Now China basically was pushed to the front of the threat queue, become the most uh, likely uh, threat. So in the 1990s, although there was the continued engagement with China, but the is another undercurrent which is to contain China. Or later on, you may um, refer this as refer to this as uh, the hedging strategy. So on the one hand, uh, we can uh, we engage with China in the hope that China would uh, change, but just in case it doesn't, uh, we contain China. So this uh, hedging strategy. Um, was uh, visible in this uh, two-pronged approach to China. Some, some this U.S. policy um, towards China as 40s, Tiananmen, uh, which uh, is basically a strong position on human rights. So that could explain the um, objection to China's Olympic bid uh, in 1993 uh, that uh, that bit eventually went to Sydney. And then uh, in terms of trade, um, Tibet and Taiwan. So the four T's, I remember there was no Xinjiang at the time. Um, so the trade to use trade uh, 
relationship uh, to to sanction China, uh, Tibet is another human rights issue, and Taiwan, of course, uh, is about democracy, etc. And in the in 1999, uh, during the uh, NATO bombing of Yugoslavia, Chinese embassy was bombed, uh, apparently because of the use of an old map. And that really sparked a strong anti-US, anti-NATO sentiment in China. And then just before 9-11, uh, indeed on the 1st of April, uh, the April 4th day, the United States uh, spy plane uh, collided with a Chinese fighter uh, of the Chinese island of Hainan. So that was the famous spy plane incident. So just before um, 9-11, China and the US was on course, uh, on, on a collision course, if you like. Were well, it not for 9-11, probably we, uh, the US-China competition would have started much uh, sooner. And as I mentioned, the, in the 1990s, the, there was this rising sentiment against uh, the United States. Um, so the book, for example, called China Can Say No, uh, was a really important book to mark the rise of Chinese nationalism. Uh, the authors all confessed that they previously loved the United States, um, but now they believe that the United States was uh, bent on hurting China. So that's uh, that's the background of this story uh, of this bilateral relationship. And then uh, there was this brief reprieve, if you like, uh, 9/11. Again. A new common enemy was found uh, in terrorism in al-Qaeda. So the United States went to Afghanistan, to Iraq, instead of to China. And for 20 years, as we know now, uh, the war on terror uh, ended in Afghanistan with the so-called loss of Afghanistan um, last week. And this allowed the United States actually to, in order to enlist China's support, uh, to, to label a Uyghur um, group, a terrorist group, uh, the East Turkmenistan um, movement, a terrorist group. And so China's uh, long dreamed um, membership in the WTO became, became a re reality uh, in the same year. So that helped China to more closely in, integrated into the world economy to become the world uh, factory floor or workshop. And China thought this um, trajectory was um, very promising. Um, China uh, launched the charm offensive uh, to present itself to the world. And some say the 20, 08 Beijing Olympics uh, was China's coming out party to the world um, with the slogan of one world, one dream. But that dream uh, was uh, waking up with the Western protests against China's Olympics. Um, the, the protests in 
uh, in Western countries, in Canberra, in uh, France, uh, in San Francisco, etc. And also the same year, uh, U.S. subprime mortgage um, crisis started the global financial crisis. Then these uh, all changed the dynamic um, between the two countries. The United States now uh, were very much disillusioned with China because China was becoming stronger, but no more democratic. And economically, the United States and the Western countries in general were also disappointed with uh, not um, up to expectation profit and the increasing competition from Chinese companies. So China is not just uh, 1 billion customers. China can also be 1 billion workers and, uh, and strong companies to, to compete, not just to be a consumer, to buy your uh, goods. So in 2019, uh, FBI director called China a whole of society threat. So everyone could be a threat. Um, from China, for example, the Chinese scientists, students in the U.S. And China also become disillusioned with the U.S. because of the U.S. The increasing inter internationalization of the South China Sea disputes, uh, U.S. pivot to Asia. And so more and more Chinese are believing that they are seeing the beginning of a new Cold War. So they, what's went wrong? So basically, um, there has been a series of hope, especially from the United States about China. So for example, they use various uh, moments as a uh, hope for China to change. For example, the internet, uh, when the internet started, uh, Bill Clinton believed that uh, China could not control the internet. Um, it, it's, if you want to control the internet, it's like uh, to nail the, the jello on the wall. Uh, it's impossible. And they also believe trade could liberalize China. Um, they believe that Hong Kong could be a bastion of democracy or freedom to inspire China to change. And also Chinese students initially after Chairman after 1989, they believe that um, they could be the agent for change. Then the pandemic initially, they believe that this was China's uh, Chernobyl moment, uh, China could collapse, etc. So um, in every case, the hope was dashed. So now there was this kind of a fear has taken over about China's rise and perceived U.S. decline. So basically, this grand power transition that would pose the biggest question of the 21st century, which was who would uh, define this century? So the last century was the American century. Would this century continue to be the U.S. century or a Chinese century? So that's that's the debate and that's the worry. 
So next week, we are going to talk about the, the rise and the fall of grid powers and whether um, the 21st century is uh, still an American century or could become a Chinese century. Thank you, everybody. And uh, we are out of time. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Chen. Thanks a Thank lot. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.